0: Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming to you, setting smack dab on the Mississippi River on a cold mid-March day. Welcome you to episode 15, which will be on side hunt. I hope you enjoyed episode 13 and 14. 13 was on President Grover Cleveland. 14 was on President Benjamin Harrison, two outstanding presidents that were avid waterfowlers. So if you had not listened to those podcasts, I suggest you do. They're extremely exciting and important. This one will be an unusual deal. I side hunt. I doubt if many of the old waterfowlers or even the young waterfowlers know exactly what a side hunt was, so we'll try to get into that in just a minute, but I wanted to say two things before we start. At, at the last uh, episode 14 podcast, I mentioned that Memphis in May Music Fest and Barbecue will be going on through the m- month of May, and the uh, Music Fest starts at the first part of May, and the Barbecue World Barbecue Contest begins in the last part of May. This will be the first time in three years that it's been held at uh, Tom Lee Park in downtown Memphis, which sets smack dab on the river and our condo unit is uh sets right at the foot of Tom Lee park so, so we can see all the construction and remodeling that has been going on to try to make Tom Lee park a world-class uh, park and they're about i would say two-thirds of the way through doing that so the other thing i want to mention is you know at this time of year is a if you want to go see sandhill cranes it is a great visit to Nebraska to watch them as they accumulate and and take a rest stop before they head on into canada it is outstanding i sus- i would recommend and truly, you still have time to go as the end of March and the 1st of April is a great time to be there. Are there they they just mass there in, in huge numbers. And as you know, they're about 10 million years old by fossil count. So these are an old ancient birds and they looked out of way. The other thing is uh, sitting on the 12th floor of this condo unit on the smack dab Mississippi River Bank, 4th Chickasaw Bluff. I can look right across the river at the at the swamp lands, uh, what we'll call the sunk lands, which were created by the new major earthquakes of 1811 and 1812. During this time it's uh, flooded a little bit and, and the, the uh, shorebirds will come through. There'll be quite a few black neck stilts, which is a beautiful shorebird. There'll be plenty of snipes and greater and yes, less yellow lags will be coming through. And I usually venture over there two or three times a week just to watch the shorebirds. They'll last about three or four weeks before they move on out of here. And uh, if depending on the water situation, sometimes we'll get uh, a bunch of ducks in here. Oh, I guess about four years ago there's about a 640 acre field over there that was flooded from the Mississippi River getting out, and there must have been 10,000 pintails in that field. There were a few other teal and a scattered bunch of mallards, but they were 98% pintails. I've never seen quite that many congregate, so I enjoy this time of year going over and watching the shorebirds. So we're going to get started on episode 15, Side Hunt, and I hope you enjoy, so sit back and listen. When side hunts, also known as match hunts, club hunts, or hunting match, first started is not known. However, if we go back to the ancient Scottish clans, we get a glimpse of how they may have started. The heads of various and remote clans were accustomed to meet at certain times and in appointed places attended by numbers of their followers, where they commenced a rigorous campaign against all the inhabitants of the forest which never failed in producing a most abundant supply of game. Deer was the most desirable of these hunting matches with 500 to 1000 stags as well as fallow deer and roe taking. These great hunting matches were the means of preserving a social intercourse between clans who live far distance from each other. It was a means also of bringing the chiefs and principal men of the country together, which allowed them to adjust differences, settle future proceedings, and join in warfare to defeat an enemy if needed, etc., etc. At these meetings, they were also able to arrange many things among themselves, which were of much more consequence than the ostensible object for which they had gathered. A general hunting match was a method by which the greatest undertakings had been suggested and nurtured without a suspicion being agitated beyond the mountains. In the olden days, a hunter was mighty in proportion to mightiness of his killing, and the competition became so strong between different hunters, they got to challenging one another in the field. So hunting contests were arranged week ahead and turned match hunts. When the time arrived for the contest, both men would go out, hunt from daylight till dark, then meet, count their spoils, and the man who had killed the most won. This was common in England and even in the United States, as in the 1860s, a well-known hunter named Al Houston who was considered one of the best hunters and shots this then in the country and who supplied a military fort near Laramie, Wyoming with game on a wager had a hunting match with a celebrated Indian hunter, with Houston winning the wager. European hunting, of course, was at various times and places a prerogative of the elite or nobility, resulting in the criminalization of hunting by the lower class for poaching. A number of Capipio people convicted of poaching were transported to the colonies of North America, so it seems reasonable to assume that match hunts in the United States were to a certain extent celebration of liberation from the tyranny of European laws restricting hunting to the elite. And they mimicked to a certain extent the hunting matches of the European elites, where two hunters match off against each other while hunting grouse or pheasant. Gradually, friends were drawn into these two-man contests and two teams would be formed. The 18th century saw the advent of these side hunts, which they became known, and these side hunts became a feature of many rural districts. Sometimes the goal sought was to rid the community of a nuisance, such as gophers, blackbirds, coyotes, wolves, English sparrows, etc. For example, the total score of tails brought in after a gopher hunt in Fillmore County, Minnesota, held on a spring day in 1863, was 10,003. That by the point system. One man's individual score was 1,420. Pocket gophers were scored at 25 points each, gray gophers at 15, and streaked ones at 10. The guests at a gala dinner that followed number 120. On these hunts, the hunter would be called together, two captains chosen, and these in turn would choose the men to constitute their hunting party. Sometimes 30 or 40 or more were enrolled on each side, and a date fixed two or three weeks ahead when the side hunt would take place with a dinner following which consisted of the game killed, if it was game now, not those animals I just mentioned. Therefore, side hunts had their origin and a beneficial custom obtained in the early pioneer days when the citizen of a town or county sallied forth to kill bears, wolves, and wildcats, in addition to those already mentioned, which were a menace to the whole community and had a redeeming social value, some would say. However, they eventually evolved into shooting anything that breathed, ranging from songbirds to bisons, and then to game. The shooting of sides and the competition thereby engendered, stimulated each man of his team to kill as much as he could. So they began competing against one another for the price of a dinner, or some other modest wager, but mostly for dinner. These side hunts were often advertised in newspapers and sporting journals. The hunts promoted social intercourse. More than sports among members and competitive elements were prominent. In these side hunts, long popular in most areas of the United States, the members of the hunt assigned points in relation to their desirability and scarcity and competing teams went into the countryside seeking the highest point total. So many points for a grouse, a quail, duck, goose, snipe, crane, deer, etc, etc. Once gun clubs made their appearance, side hunts were conducted at some of these clubs where each member strove to kill as many birds as possible so that his side might win and that the other side had to pay for and prepare a gala dinner which followed. Barrels of game birds and big and small game were killed, no longer just vermins in these hunts. Probably nothing tended more to exterminate game birds and large and small game than these contests. As the contestants were out to kill all they could, so reported many newspaper sporting journals critics First ever Pigeon Shooting Club in the United States was the Cincinnati Shooting Club, which was organized June 28, 1831. It was composed of many experienced and skillful members who ranked, ranked among the best shots in any country. The membership was limited to 25 and the annual dues were fixed at $5. Once a year, a day was appointed by the officers for a trial of the skill of the members and premiums to be paid out of club's funds awarded to the winning side. At these trap shooting trials, which is what the Cincinnati Shooting Club was set up for, and they shot live pigeons, wild pigeons. At these trap shooting trials, no member was allowed to shoot by proxy, and the premium could not be won by the same member twice in succession. The distance at wild pigeons were 20 yards. The first recorded trap shooting match of the club was held on January the 30th, 1833 at Corbin's Sportsman Hall in Cincinnati. Wild pigeons were used in this match and in matches for many years afterwards by clubs in different parts of the country. And there is no question but what this practice was an important factor in the practical extension of this beautiful bird which was so abundant in certain sections. Even as late as the 1870s, the tie-offs were shot at quail and not passenger pigeons or wild pigeons. They're also called passenger pigeons. Besides trap shooting, they also indulged in hunting. There being at this time no restriction on the killing of game. Either as to season or quantity, the club provided an open season by bylaw, which, of course, binding only on the members of the club. Open season for co woodcock commenced on July 1 and ended February 1, while the open season for quail, pheasants, and rabbits commenced on September 1 and ended March 1. Any member shooting out of season was fined fifty cents for each offense. No limit nor season was enacted for waterfowl. Furthermore, their club indulged in side hunts, one conducted in the fall and one in the spring. A game dinner was prepared the first Thursday and every November from games killed by members the day preceding. Now this was in the early days of these side hunts. Later on, they'll be held around Christmas and occasionally on Thanksgiving. So continuing on, two sides were chosen by the president and vice president. The first ever side hunt of the the club was held on Wednesday, November the 2nd, 1831. The members met on the evening of that day to exhibit the game shot and count the points. The game brought in by the two sides for this occasion was as follows. President Buchanan's side, two Spanish curlews, one blue winged till, three Marlins, points 36. Jay and Max's side, one green wheeled till, 12 snipes, points 30. Jay Gibson, one mallard, two wood ducks, two green winged tills, three snipes, points 25. B.B. then 1 Mallard, 2 Wood Ducks, 1 Green Winged Till, 4 Snipes, points, 24. Total points, 35 for President's Buchanan's side. W. Corbin's side, Corbin shooting for his side, got 2 Wood Ducks, 7 Till, 1 Yellow Lag, 1 Marlin, 16 snipe points, 64. J.J. Wright on his team, got 7 Till, 6 Snipes, points, 33. Fred Reed for his team, 1 spoonbill, 1 Blue Winged Till, points, 8. W. Uh, Noble got 6 Ducks and 1 Batter Box, whatever Batter Box is, 3 Till, 9 snipes points 55 t dawson three till 14 snipes points 37 jd garrard one mallard six snipes points 17 g smith four marlins points four total 218 so corbin side one 218 115 point system For the first springside hunt held April 1832 for the Cincinnati Shooting Club, only 11 members out of 25 turned out. Yet they reported game 333, which consisted of ducks, teal, snipes, curlews, clovers, and other shorebirds. The minutes of the club showed that the side hunts and dinners, which must have been most delightful, continued for seven years. The dinners were held usually at Corbin's Sportsman Hall on the turnpike three miles east of Cincinnati and were enlivened by speeches, songs, and drinks. The spring hunt of 1834 was held on unfavorable weather conditions. However, 536 waterfowl were killed for the two-day hunt with a game consisting of ducks, snipes, and marlin. The last game dinner was in the fall of 1838 when the club disbanded. One of the earliest mentions where they used the term match hunt is found in the Porter's Spirits of the Time for the spring of 1857, where two teams of nine members of Van Buren, Arkansas, hunted only, quotes, birds, hunting all day shooting plovers, sandpipers, curlews, snipes, quail, ducks, woodcocks, and prairie chickens. The score was 166 to 160, with all counting one point except that the latter two counting six points each, and that was good woodcocks and prairie chickens. At Glencoe, Minnesota, points accorded for various species in October 1873 were plover and snipes, 1 point, grouse, 10, till 7, ducks other than teal, 10, prairie chickens, 15, woodcock 20, goose and brants, 50, sandhill cranes, 60, and whooping crane, 400 points. Now the universities, even some universities across the country got in on this. At Michigan State University in the 1870s, a competitive grand match hunt was commonly held in October by the students. In 1873, the match hunt bagged 79 world, 12 wild pigeons, 9 quail, 6 partridges, 4 turkeys, and 8 ducks, with the winning team being treated to an oyster dinner by the losers. So you see here, they don't always eat the game. Sometimes they feast on these oysters and other things. At Henderson, Minnesota, sportsmen planned an annual hunt in 1874. Scores for the two teams consisting of 18 men each at a hunt in Freeborn County in August 1874 were fairy chickens. The two teams, one team scored 409 and the other in 395. Ducks, 107 to 22. These were actual numbers killed and not points. The points were not given. That same year, the chickens, ducks, and geese brought in by Fergus Falls, Minnesota participants in a match hunt filled stables and laid heap upon the sidewalks. In 1874, the spring match hunt of the Missouri Valley Sporting Club of Iowa shooting only ducks showed the winning team scoring 113 ducks for a total point of 630, while the losing team killed 60 ducks with a total point of 325. That same October, the club hosted what this time was termed a side hunt. So you can see there's interchangeable terms, match hunt and uh, side hunt. But that October hunt by the club consisted of four members on each team. The results were not given. Members of the Omaha Sportsman Club, which was organized in 1863, returned from their one-day spring hunt in 1874. As usual, two teams were to shoot waterfowl for the day on their annual Springside hunt. The total kill was 651 to 546 and consisted of 14 mallards, 21 gadwalls, 55 teal, 16 wood ducks, 35 scops, 17 widgeons, 35 spoonvilles, 2 canvasbacks, 1 pintail, 4 Canada geese, 2 snow geese, 2 speckle bellies, 4 sandhill cranes, 35 long bill curlews, 115 Eskimo curlews, 14 godwis, 131 snipes, 4 40 Plovers, 18 Yellowshanks, and 13 Sandpipers with a point score of 2046. Now wouldn't you just love to have been on that summit? Can you imagine the variety of game that the shorebirds and the ballards shot and the gadwalls, all the waterfowl, wow. Okay, let's go on with this deal. The fall hunt of the Omaha Sportsman Club in October 1875 allowed each side to select their favorite hunting ground. Some went to Iowa in the vicinity of Missouri Valley Junction, others to Skeleton or Barlet, while others went to Horseshoe Lake in Nebraska, and two others hunted in the vicinity of... Bellevue, Iowa, while two hunters went to Columbus in Nebraska, so they were going back and cross between Nebraska and, and Iowa. Captain Preston's side totaled 976, consisting of clapper rail, yellow shanks, golden plovers, snakes, sandpipers, kildees, snow goose, pentails, dusky ducks, which were, which were black duck, wood ducks, scop, mallards, Hill, shovelers, gadwalls, and redheads. Captain Kennedy's side totaled 573, and featured much of the same kind of game as Captain Preston's side. In 1877, at Reading, California, the sportsmen divided into two teams for a match hunt. The two teams bagged 41 ducks, 48 other ducks. So when they talked about 41 ducks, that's what's mallards. And other than mallards, they killed 48 other ducks. They killed 5, 915 larks, 7 blue jays, 18 killdeer, and 6 coots with a supper following that night. Another California match hunt occurred that same year by two teams, producing 7 deers, 45 geese, and 58 mallards, along with various smaller ducks. No points were given in the write-up. The Omaha Sportsman Club had an annual fall side hunt in August 1880, and two teams were chosen, with one hunter from each team hunting with a member of the other team. The high gun was by General Cook, the famous Apache Indian fighter, who killed over decoys 276 with a 10-gauge double all shot on the wing. And this was waterfowl. In April 1881, the club held a three-day side hunt. Geese ranged from 8 to 12 points according to the variety, and ducks from 1 to 5. Canada Geese was the only variety of geese which scored at 12 points, and canvasbacks and bluff-bustered meganzas and dusky ducks at 5. Hawks and owls also counted 5 each. The game which counted the highest were Sandhill Cranes at 15, and Swans and Eagles 25. The next year in the spring of 1881, the two high guns from each team was Crooks and John Petty, the two killing 580 ducks, geese, brants, and Sandhill Cranes in 10 hours of shooting all with 10 gauges and on the wing over decoys. On the Duff Coast at Mobile, the valuation of game adopted by the Gulf City Gun Club for their annual two day hunt in November 1882 was bear, 300 points, wildcats, 150, deer buck, 125, doe deer, 100, fox, 100, rabbit, 12, squirrel, 7, goose, 75, turkey gobbler, 60, turkey hen, 50, chicken hawk, 25, owl, 20, sparrow hawk, 10, woodcock, 20, quail, 7, wild pigeon, 10, wilson snipe, 5, plover, 5, sandpiper, 10, dove, 4, Robin 1, Lark 1, rail 1, Coot 1, King rail 2, gallinule 2. For ducks, canvasbacks 25 points, black mallards 20, mallards 10, pintails 8, wigeons 8, redhead 8, teal 5, and other ducks 5. In 1885 at Albany, Oregon, a match hunt with two teams of 30 hunters each produced a score of 3,801 to 3,162 points, which tallied 21 geese, 31 mallards, 39 teal, 13 pheasants, 162 snipes, 10. Killed deers, 55 yellow legs, and four coons. Following the hunt, a game divider was given at the Revere house by the losing team. In the town of Howard, Kansas, in December 1898, the supper given after the side hunt consisted of 50 dozen quail, 12 possums, 36 jackrabbits, 198 cottontails, 92 squirrels, 9 geese, 27 prairie chickens, and 72 snipes. Now, as I mentioned uh, earlier, these t- hunts began to begin start uh, not only at the start of the season in October, generally, but really developed and, and uh, morphed into more Christmas side hunts, and as I said, occasional Thanksgiving side hunts. So, according and going on, During a Christmas side hunt in 1902, the citizens of Wisner, and Nebraska held a one-day side hunt. They killed 150 quail, 225 rabbits, and more than 200 ducks. As years passed, most side hunts occurred during the Christmas season. But as I said, Thanksgiving also had its share of side hunts. By the end of the 19th century, side hunts engendered a great deal of rivalry and were conducive of much force. However, not everyone appreciated these side hunts. Besides ordinary citizens, they were also deplored by some sportsmen having the preservation of game birds at heart. A newspaper advised that every conscientious sportman should excuse the club hunts. This association of hunters in rivalry till game is a blot on the history of civilization. It goes beyond the greediness of the savage. Boarding editor Sandy Greenwalls, and he was a famous one, he wrote a column entitled Destructive Club Hunt in the July 24, 1892 issue of the Omaha Sunday Sunday Bee. He wrote, The Omaha Gun Club will revert to the pernicious custom of a general club hunt this fall. Captains will be appointed and the two teams selected at the club's September meeting and they hunt fixed for some time in October. While these competitions en- engender a great deal of rivalry and are conducive of much sport, they are to be deployed by all sportsmen having the preservation of our game birds at heart. Feathered game of all kinds, even including the prolific wildfowl, is being diminished at a rapid rate, and ere long game preserves will be the legitimate gunner's only hope of a little sports to fill. Pot hunters and club side hunts are instruments of destruction only, and both should not be approved of. The incentive to go forth in quest of a game bag whose only merits is its magnitude is one that should be studious frowned upon, and that is the only inducement for a club hunt. Each bird is graduated, that is, counts so many points, according to its merit as game. When the hunt is over, the game is turned in at headquarters, the score counted and reported, and the game given are thrown away, that is, the bulk of it. Every conscientious sportsman should disregard these club hunts and do not participate in them. A New York newspaper reported in 1897 that at the time when strenuous efforts are being made to protect game of all kinds, a club of sportsmen ought not to see how much game they can destroy in order to win a supper. In general, side hunting is an unworthy form of sports because unquestionably it does encourage the spirit of indiscriminate killing. Side hunts were still indulged in by many gun clubs as the country entered the 20th century. While these hunts were conducted within the law, the spirit of the contest was considered wrong by many. According to those opposed, barrels of birds and games were killed in the hunts. Nothing tended more to exterminate the birds and game than these contests, and the contestants being out killed all they can, some assured to kill birds other than game birds. All large birds and many small ones suffer. One conservationist called it simply a game of murder. He said, of all the influence now operating for the destruction of our birds and mammals, the most outrageous is the so-called side hunt. A side hunt may properly be defined as a game of murder, in which a body of particularly brutal, thoughtless men, sometimes more than a hundred in number, and usually known as a gun club, choose sides, arms himself with guns, and an unlimited quantity of, of ammunition, go forth on a given day, and for Fixed number of days, shoot many kinds of wild creatures for points. At the close of the slaughter, the victims are collected, counted according to the points agreed upon for each species, and the side which has accomplished the greatest amount of butchery is declared the winner. Author and lawyer Theodore Van Dyke said, such a contest involves too little of the true elevating spirit of outdoor life and offers little attraction to the true sportsman. A true sportsman is a man who finds his recreation in a fair and exciting effort to get something which is made for human use in a way that involves some hardship, a little risk, a good deal of skill, and patience and plenty of out-of-door life. During the last decade of the 19th century, a popular activity in New England towns on Christmas Day was a side hunt. It drew a review from ornithologist Frank Chapman of the American Museum of Natural History, who said in 1899 in his hall to create a Christmas bird census, he said, Reports of the hundreds of game birds which were slaughtered during our senior hunt were often published in our leading sporting journals, with perhaps a word of edu- editorial comment. We are not certain that the side hunt is solely a thing of the past, but we feel assured that that no reputable sportsman journal of today would venture to publish an account of one unless it was to condemn it. In 1900, Chapman and other conservationists were disturbed by the killing of birds in the annual Christmas event called the side hunt. As a protest and an alternative, Chapman, then-editor of Bird Lore, suggested bird lovers start a new kind of Christmas side hunt in the form of a Christmas blurred count, or census. So he organized 27 friends in 25 locations in Canada and the United States on Christmas Day 1900 to count birds rather than to shoot them. This venerable event recorded in the 1900 edition of Bird Lore was the Audubon Society's magazine. Was Chapman successful? Afterwards, Shooting and Fisherman's Magazine took the matter up and urged their lead readers to aid them in making these side hunts unpopular. The magazine reported September 1901, We believe we have been more successful than was expected at the time the matter of side hunts was brought up, as very few side hunts were heard from, and we predict that fewer still will occur this season. If any are contemplated, we trust the better judgment of sportsmen will prevail in suppressing them. These side hunts in the 19th century became a feature of many rural districts and continued somewhat into the first two decades of the 20th century. During a Christmas side hunt in 1902, the citizens of Wisner, Nebraska held a one-day side hunt as reported in the January 3, 1903 recreation magazine. They killed 150 quail, 225 rabbits and more than 200 ducks. Nevertheless, gradually the match hunts and side hunts came to an end. Albeit reluctantly, and not without some conflicts, giving way to the Christmas bird counts, which continues today every Christmas season. And that ends episode 15. As you know, uh, most of my episodes are of the, the old times, given by the old timers. This podcast of deep and relevant topics of the golden age of waterfowling is going to cover all facets of duck hunting, and we're going to get to punt gunning, sink box shooting, duck hauls, live decoys, duck clubs, market hunters, et cetera, et cetera. And I tried to, in these first few podcasts to do uh, things that are unusual, and I hope you've enjoyed them. I do them every Tuesday, and you can find my podcast by really just simply Google searching Historic Duck Hunting Stories Podcast, and once you do that, you'll uh, come to uh, all the podcasts podcast that I've done where you can find them. This is total of 15 and that's been over since I do four each month. That's basically what is that? Four months now almost. So there'll be one every Tuesday come out and I recommend you go to my, my uh, website, waterfiling.net and there you will see at the top on the right hand side a blog. Punch on that and you'll be taking to my blog which has numerous old waterfiling stories other than just these podcasts and each of my podcasts is transcribed onto the, the pot on the blog site so you can after I give a podcast like this 15 it'll be on there If you want to read the text to go there, you can see it. And while you're there, view all of my old books. As I said, most of them are out of print. The only one I have in print is uh, Historic Duck Hunting Images, and that is it's for sale. So if you'll contact me through my website, I think I have nine left. So I suggest you get one. They have really gone fast, and they're excellent. It's an image book of old-time duck hunting, 200 pages. And it's probably got 250 images. It has a little context or a little text to give context. So please go there and view that. And we're going to close the reflection. Summer approaches on the breeding ground, the numberless pools, until now hidden under snowy covering, become bordered or covered with water. The mud about their edges begin to soften, and through the water the melting ice in the bottom looks pale green. As summer has passed and fall has arrived with its many kaleidoscopic colors, ducks and geese fill the air with their loud, resounding cries as they migrate and the rapid wing strokes of arriving flocks add a heavy light base to the course which greets the early arrivals there to await the opening of another hunting season in the wilds of the Mid-South. When opening day arrives, here amidst this loud-tongued multitude suddenly appears the graceful forms of Mallard clans as dead and I wait in the blind at the secluded, timbered surrounding. As shooting hour approaches, light wings flutter above us, rafted by the playful Zephyr, their slender necks at times darting quickly, riding left as their bright black eyes catch sight of the decoys, charming and elegant, all making a ripple. I shall never forget my first impression of this dead timber track with its teeming waterfowl, where four or six species of ducks could be seen in the sky, with multitudes of mallards, pintails, teal, and gadwalls drifting about overhead. It was one of my most joyous, buoyant, and innocent pleasures of my life when I now drift back to those bright, sweet mornings on opening day when I revel in the joy and comfort and communion with Mother Nature, my dog and gun, and most of all, my brothers and my dead. Waterfowlers, I tell you, for episode 16, we're going to do one of my specials, and it's called Evolution of the Duck Hall. Now, I know many have written uh, books and outdoor articles on the evolution of duck calls, but you're going to find this uh, podcast uh, of episode 16 very interesting because it contains some new material which other people have not found before. So tune in for this. It'll be a great podcast. That's episode 16, and I'll leave you with God bless.